I've seen patients run the gamut of different kinds of cancer, and I've been able to help them all. And I think in some cases, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed because it's only been a few years. I think many of them will be cured of cancer. And these, some of these are from families where all their relatives died from cancer. So they're sitting ducks. If nothing changes the trajectory of their lives, they're going to die from cancer, even if they get good Western medicine. To me, that's the most exciting part of my trajectory in life is to discover things that have never been seen before that can really help people. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Raven Hill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. This is a fascinating conversation with a truly unique doctor. Dr. Peter Ekman earned both his MD and PhD in physiology in the early 1970s. Having never heard of acupuncture, an early job offer as a staff physician in a Los Angeles acupuncture clinic changed his life, as well as the trajectory of acupuncture in the West. There he received on-the-job training from a group of Korean acupuncturists and became quickly enamored with this healing art. Peter has trained under many legends over the years, including a decade of periodic study with J.R. Worsley. His book, In the Footsteps of the Yellow Emperor, is an intriguing account of the history of Chinese medicine, as well as the genesis of the lineage taught by J.R. Worsley. We open this episode talking about both that book and Peter's experience studying under Worsley, which includes a detailed analysis of building patient rapport. Peter then takes us through his Korean acupuncture roots and the mentorship he had in Seoul that revealed for him literal secrets of cancer treatment strategies that he is adeptly using and refining in his clinical practice today. Our discussion includes his passion for oncology practice and the nuances of a pulse signal that he believes is common to all cancer patients. Never feeling satisfied with one style of medicine or acupuncture, Peter shares with us his studies of other approaches such as those from Japan, China, and Vietnam and even his studies of Ayurvedic pulse diagnosis. This was a most enjoyable conversation for me with a man who is wholly dedicated to his craft and the service of others. With nearly 50 continuous years of acupuncture practice and having authored three books, influenced licensing standards, and taught at numerous institutions, Peter has demonstrated a level of commitment that few others have. His stories are engrossing and his wisdom rich. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Dr. Peter Ekman. Peter, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you very much, Todd. It's a pleasure to meet you and to have you on the show. Thank you very much for doing this with me today. And I I consider you to be one of the legends in the field of Chinese medicine, at least here in North America. You've been so influential from your books to your, your scholarly pursuits, your teachings, your practice. You've done so much. I've been reading in the footsteps of the yellow emperor for a while now. And I just, when we talked about doing this interview, I just dove back into it. And I'm just absolutely loving the history that you have in there. And I think we have a lot of exciting things to talk about today. So again, thank you for doing this. 
Well, that's great, and I'm very flattered. And it's also very serendipitous. Uh, just uh, today, I got an email, actually last night, an email from the woman who's doing a Chinese translation of In the Footsteps, which is uh, promised to be published in China. Um, and she's just at the very tail end and needs me to help her with some of the terminology and concepts that she's a little unclear on. So um, this, this has been in the works for probably greater than five years now. And we're wow. right at the tail end. So it's very serendipitous and timing. Oh, that's very exciting. And you yeah. originally published this book in 96. Is that yes. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you had a revised edition somewhat later, right? Yeah, I think... Uh, 2008 maybe 2000, it was it was a little earlier than that i think 2007, 2007 sorry yeah. yeah the book right here mm -hmm. well, let's talk a bit about the book basically for anyone who doesn't know the subtitle is tracing the history of traditional acupuncture and in it you're really focused on well you have quite a broad history of chinese medicine which is wonderful to see and with a lot of detail. And then you're also basically demonstrating or illustrating one of your, your mentors and teachers, Gerard Worsley, where his lineage came about and the history behind that. And it's, it's really a fascinating read. And I, I love reading history. And this is definitely one of those that I'm, it's, for me, it's a page turner. Of course, it's not going to be for everyone who maybe isn't into Chinese medicine. But if you're into history, there's just so much richness here. How did the book come about? And tell me about the creation of it. Okay, well, um, th there's several different uh, factors that would be responsible for it. One of them is my own just internal curiosity about Worsley's teachings that I had been struggling with uh, how to place in the context of all of my other acupuncture uh, knowledge uh, from different teachers. And it's not so easy to see where Worsley's uh, ideas came from. And I had lots of opportunity compared to most people to actually talk to him about that and kind of got stonewalled by him in, in terms of getting answers. So part of it, as I say, is just my own curiosity that I wanted to answer the questions that interested me. The other part, or well, one other part, I should say, is that uh, I'm not sure how much you or your listeners know about the history of Worsley's five element style of practice, but there really was no textbook of that particular approach to acupuncture existent anywhere in the world when I was a student. And uh, one of Worsley's uh, offshoot institutions was the Traditional Acupuncture Institute in Columbia, Maryland. Um, and the one of probably the most important influence in that institution was Bob Duggan, that I was uh, a fellow I was pretty close to. And he was looking to see if somebody was willing to construct a textbook basically for the that the institution could use and uh, he asked me would i be willing to take that job on and i, I thought about it initially and said well yeah you know it sounds like an interesting thing to do 
And so we had a contract and everything and I got a down payment, you know, uh, an advance on writing the book. And I think I spent a couple of years playing with it until I finally realized that, you know, I can't really do this without being able to explain where these ideas come from. It, it doesn't make sense to me to just put together a bunch of uh, theorems or, or instructions on how to practice five element acupuncture out of any context of uh, where it fits in with everything else. So I actually ended up uh, calling Bob and I said, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm going to return your money. I'm not going to do it. Uh, I would like to write. I want to, I want to investigate uh, further where this information comes from so that when I do finally put it together, you know, I'm, if you want to take a rain check, that's fine. Uh, eventually, maybe I will be able to write a textbook. But the first thing I want to do is track down which parts came from where and which parts of any are attributable to Worsley's own creations. And so that's really, I think, where the jumping off part uh, place took, uh, occurred, that I changed my focus from writing a textbook to doing a, um, what would you call it, a detective story. And so that was the first, the, it's actually the second part of the book, but it's the first part of, uh, it, it's the, the first part of Footsteps is the history of Chinese medicine, but it was engendered by my uh, attempts to create a Worsley lineage of his teachings, which is really what's in the second half of the book. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a bit about Worsley's lineage and what makes it unique. Of course, in North America, anyway, perhaps all of our accrediting bodies who license or, or regulate practitioners are requiring traditional Chinese medicine to be the competency. And of course, Worsley's influence and gift to us is quite different from that, isn't it? Can you share yeah, a bit yes. of how? Yes, I'm they not differ? sure that I would a hundred percent, or I would I would qualify um, competence in, in TCM as not necessarily the uh, criterion for licensure and. Um, other qualifications, for instance, um, in California, where I, for many years, uh, was on the, the acupuncture board that uh, was responsible for licensure, um, there were various disciplines within acupuncture and oriental medicine that were seen as valid routes to licensure. So that was years ago. It's not reflective necessarily of what they're doing now in California, but that along with the NCCA, which I played a role in the original foundation, uh, recognized that all these various traditions had a right to be recognized as valid in and of themselves, not necessarily as some subcategory of TCM. 
So that was the, the original vision of most of the people I grew up with in, in the field of acupuncture. You know, Kiko Matsumoto, for instance, in uh, Japanese acupuncture, um, um, Stuart Cutchins and I in Korean acupuncture, uh, et cetera. So that was our original vision was how to create either a, a national uh, criterion or uh, individual state criteria for competency in beginning entry-level practice of acupuncture. And we recognize that there should be some basic knowledge that would be common to all the different lineages of acupuncture that you could test for competency. And that in addition, somebody should have at least some level of expertise beyond that basic level in one of the uh, subcategories, one of the lineages. So that's how I still think of it, that even though TCM is the most well-known, and as you say, it's widely accepted in uh, the Americas as uh, the, the standard, there's a quite substantial uh, variation in that. As you know, the North American Journal of uh, um, Oriental Medicine is a Canadian publication, and that's a Japanese style that uh, really owes nothing to TCM and is in many ways one of, uh, one of the most influential American journals trying to think of, you know, if there are any other current American journals in the field of acupuncture. And, I'm not coming up with anything. I think they're the only one that I currently read. Right. One more in the past, but they've all been defunct. Yeah. So how is Worsley's lineage of acupuncture different from the traditional Chinese medicine? Well, the, the first thing is that the TCM model, uh, I, I'm not sure that this is accurately reflective of current teaching, but for most of the time the TCM has been propagated, the five element aspect, uh, Wuxing uh, theory, uh, as opposed to yin yang theory was really downplayed as a significant uh, aspect of Chinese medicine. And um, it's only much more in the recent past that I think they're beginning to come around to the idea that yin yang and wuxing theory are pretty much equally bedrock aspects of the fundamental principles of Chinese medicine. But again, even, even to call something TCM is a, a bit of a, uh, uh, a hedge because there are many, many different uh, ways people practice TCM. Uh, it, it's not homogeneous at all. Um, and, and like I said before, you can start with a basic fundamental level of principles that almost everybody agrees to. But if you look at the actual ways people practice TCM, even in China, they're, they're quite different from each other. You know, there are some people that are real uh, experts in um, the, uh, the use of astrological uh, approaches to acupuncture, you know, based on the Wu Yun Yushi uh, aspects. There are um, people that uh, 
basically have, have tried to create an herbal uh, equivalent, uh, an acupuncture equivalent to herbal medicine by uh, coming up with uh, acupuncture points that, or groups of points that are the equivalent to the functions of a Chinese herb or a Chinese herbal prescription. Those are just a couple of examples of um, the possibility of different uh, stylizations of approach for acupuncture in Chinese medicine and, and would still be considered part of TCM today. So that's, that's the TCM part. The Worsley part is that basically when Worsley started teaching, which was in the very beginning of the 1970s, I think his first class was in 1971, somewhere around then. Um, what he recognized was that the only fairly uh, well-known style of practice was the, wasn't even called TCM then because the, there, there wasn't anything else and so it was just called Chinese medicine. And that that original approach, which you can probably come across in, uh, the Essentials textbook uh, uh, of acupuncture published in China. You know, that was, I think, the first, that along with the Barefoot Doctor's Manual, the first publications coming out of China. Um, they really didn't have much in the way of five element uh, information. And um, the other thing that they were really lacking in was any interest in the spiritual dynamics or even the mental and emotional dynamics that were important in Chinese medicine. And so I think Worsley's driving force at that point was recognizing that he cared much more about those aspects of Chinese medicine than he did about the uh, other bedrock teachings. In fact, the whole yin-yang fraction of Chinese medicine was pretty much left out of Worsley's teachings. You know, he, he gave it lip service, but he never taught anything about it. And so he kind of went extremely in the opposite direction and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna delve into this missing part of what's being taught as Chinese medicine that I believe was originally the most important part of Chinese medicine. And in a way he was kind of prophetic, I think in, in uh, making that statement, because if you go back and look at the Neijing and other foundational classics, I mean, you'll pretty much come across statements like the spirit is the foundation of every acupuncture treatment. And, you know, it's never discussed in the uh, TCM literature. The current TCM literature. So uh, he was a little, Worsley was a showman as much as he was a, uh, a teacher. And so in, in some ways he, I think, uh, made more claims than were warranted by historical research about the antiquity of his style of practice. But you were asking me where did it come from and you know how is it different than the other styles 
And so it's different in that emphasis. And where it came from is what my book was about, me trying to figure out, well, where did it come from? And so I went around uh, Europe, basically uh, interviewing his colleagues and uh, his teachers when I could find them, um, people that knew who he was uh, in contact with when he was learning and uh, eventually came to a hypothesis, if you will, about where the various parts of his teachings came from. And bottom line answer is, I believe he essentially made a syncretic analysis of uh, acupuncture where he put together teachings he had gotten from various different sources, all of them contemporary. You know, he was not a scholar in, in any sense. He was a, you know, a student of contemporary teachers and he made a synthesis of all their ideas that at least fit together without uh, violating each other. And the focal point of all of that was this emphasis on the mind, the emotions, the spirit, and seeing that the easiest way to get there was through the lens of the five elements. How much of classical Chinese medicine was integrated into his teachings and his lineage that he created? Well, I, I believe a fair amount was, uh, although I think it was more by accident than by intention. As I said, Worsley was not a scholar. He couldn't read Chinese. He had only, um, when he started teaching, he had only been to Asia once, as far as I know, which was... Uh, 1963 or four or something like that. Um, and uh, the only available literature in English, which was, as far as I know, the only language that he spoke, that Worsley spoke at the time that he began uh, teaching, the only literature was Ilza Weith's partial translation of, of the Suen, um, Felix Mann's couple of books uh, on uh, acupuncture theory and practice. And um, uh, the Mary Austin version of Dennis Lawson Wood's books. Dennis, some of Dennis Lawson Wood's books by themselves and Mary Austin's take off on that. And I think that's about it as far as I remember. Uh, so uh, the question is really how much of those sources had classical information in them, and the answer is that there was a fair amount of classical information. And if you if you look at the Su Wen and and the Neijing, they talk about the fundamentals of how did acupuncture get started. The one chapter in the Su Wen that talks about that refers to this legendary figure. Um, uh, who uh, essentially put together a, 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 an approach that was based on colors and pulses. And so colors, and, they, and it's, it's more than that. Uh, the colors were actually in the same passage, if I remember correctly, were... Um, it may have even said complexions and pulses, but, the, but, but in the same passage, it laid out the five colors. 
And it was clearly a reference to the, the five elemental five phase analysis. So um, Worsley kept the color part of that as one, what he called leg of the stool. His teachings were basically you needed three legs of the stool to figure out uh, what was essential to each individual patient. And so the other legs of the stool could be uh, the body odor or smell, the sound of the person's voice, and the emotional uh, qualities that a, a person was uh, expressing inappropriately. And all of those are topics that are dealt with in the classics. It's none of that is non-classical. It's all classical. It just wasn't all collected in one location. There's no one book that has chapter one. Here are the here are the teachings that Worsley later incorporated as his approach. So he was a synthesizer. He put these things together, but they were all classical teachings. The only thing that was not class, there were a couple of things that were not classical. One obvious one, homeopathy. Homeopathy had absolutely nothing to do with uh, Chinese medicine. And yet Worsley had lots of colleagues who were homeopaths, some of whom taught in his college. And so he incorporated a lot of homeopathic theory like the law of cure, et cetera, into what he taught. That obviously was not part of Chinese medicine. And the other one that I can think of right off the bat is the Akabani test, which he obviously learned from one of his teachers. Um, it's a contemporary, more or less uh, 20th century Japanese technique that could not have been part of the classical approach. Um, interestingly, that is a very important, I feel, teaching in uh, acupuncture theory that uh, I'm currently working on how to, that'll be in my next book, how to, uh, how to identify Akabani imbalances on the, uh, in the pulse. Uh, Akabani originally described it by using this uh, heating test using an incense stick at the Jingwell points, but uh, Worsley actually had claimed he could feel that in the pulse. He never explained how, and I saw him make claims of, with his students, you have this Akabani imbalance on the gallbladder and you have that on the spleen, uh, just from the pulse. But uh, I always wondered how the heck he was doing that and whether he was bullshitting or not. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, like part of my personality, which you can probably gather from reading footsteps is I'm like, in some ways, like either a bulldog or a donkey. I, I prefer to think of it as like a donkey. I'm very stubborn and persistent. And, you know, once I get a taste of something, I'm not satisfied till I can figure out where it came from. And so I have spent many years looking for Akabani imbalances in the pulse, and now I know where they are. So uh, um, I think that should be part of classical Chinese medicine, but uh, it wasn't identified in the classical times. So I don't know if I answered your question fully. But... Oh, you gave me so much. Thank you. I'm intrigued with the homeopathy because my first teacher who you write about, Dr. Anton Jayasuriya of Sri Lanka, Mm -hmm. also was a homeopath mm -hmm. and taught that alongside acupuncture. And we did something called homeopuncture. 
And for me, and that being my first exposure, it was just something that kind of went hand in hand. But since then, I've not really come across any teachings where they're necessarily combined. So until reading your book, I wasn't aware that Worsley was a, a student or a practitioner of homeopathy. He wasn't a, really a practitioner. He, he, he never was formally trained as a homeopath. He had some naturopathic training, but not homeopathic specifically. It's just he was surrounded. His, his closest colleague, I think, during the times he ran his school in England was um, Van Buren, not Van Buren, uh, who was the other guy? Oh, I'm blocking out his name. Is that um, Stamp? Stamp? Yeah, yeah, Stamp. Stamp. Uh, Malcolm Stamp. Uh, Stemp was purely a homeopath. That was he. He wasn't an acupuncturist at all, um, and he was very close to Worsley. Uh, you know, Worsley was not the easiest person to get along with, and so the his the faculty his uh, his college kept changing, but Stemp was probably the one that he maintained the closest relationship with, and therefore because he was a homeopath, Worsley had lots of exposure to him. Hmm. Now, one thing that really intrigued me is that you write about one skill that he taught that was about most important was building patient rapport. Yes. And it was essential that the patient be able to trust the practitioner. Can you talk a bit about the importance of that and what that looked like in his teaching? Well, that's an interesting question. I've never thought about actually how to discuss that, but this is what I come up with for the moment that my original teaching training is in Western medicine. So, you know, I'm a, a trained physician and it's a classical precept in Western medicine that bedside manner is a, a crucial aspect of being a good doctor. And I think you can probably go back into the Hippocratic corpus and find uh, similar uh, statements and uh, I think a lot of it is even embodied in the Hippocratic Oath about you know not not doing harm and etc. It's a bit, it's about how you relate to the patients you're taking care of. So even before I ever heard of acupuncture, that was very important to me personally, as if I'm going to be taking care of somebody as their doctor, I need to have their trust and. While for many doctors, you get that trust because you have the white coat and you have the diploma. For me, that was never important. I got rid of the white coat as quick as I could, and uh, um, and don't you know? As we're talking here, I don't I don't go out of my way to to use my doctor title, uh, even with my patients. There are some patients that like me too, and I will oblige them. But most many of my patients just call me Peter and that's fine. So um, I felt right from the beginning, as I said, that it was very important to figure out if I'm gonna be taking care of somebody, I need to feel that they understand what I'm committing myself to and that they trust me to have good intentions and good knowledge that, I, that I'm gonna be open with them and honest with them. And so when I came across that kind of approach into Worsley's teachings, it didn't particularly um, strike me as unusual or new, other than 
that if I compare it to some of my experiences with TCM practitioners, there are some TCM practitioners, and I don't want to even limit it to that. I'll talk about you know, the Western acupuncturists, the French medical acupuncture lineage that I saw many, saw many teachers of demonstrate their skills with patients that were horrendous. I mean, there was zero uh, in, interpersonal connection between practitioner and patient. And, uh, you know, the needle might be these humongously thick needles that were obviously really painful and patients were uh, suffering from uh, being treated. And the practitioner just was blithely ignorant or uh, didn't care about the, the patient's response or, or gave them some, you know, kind of um, silly words about, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's part of uh, what makes the treatment work, something like that. So Worsley kind of was closer to my own um, thinking just uh, on that level about the importance of relating to the patient. But it goes deeper than that. The other part, and I think the more important part of Worsley's emphasis on rapport with the patient is he, he, he analyzed why rapport was important and that it wasn't just because you wanted the patient to trust you. It was also the idea that we all walk around with social masks, every one of us. You know, when we meet each other, we say, hi, how are you? We're not asking how they are usually. You know, it's, it's, a, it's another way of saying hello. It, it's not really a request for information about, did you have a good night's sleep last night? You know, is your stomach hurting you these days? No, it's just, hello, you know, it's, it's nice to see you again. So he was convinced that unless you could get a person to be willing to drop their social mask, you would never get accurate information out of them that they would basically just keep giving you the mask instead of the reality underneath the mask. And so that was a, a big part of his teachings that actually did influence me deeply was that if I wanted to get my patients to give me accurate information, I had to figure out how to form a relationship with them that would at least favor them uh, being willing to show me something that's behind the mask. You know, nobody ever completely drops their mask. That's part of who we, you know, it's our ego. We, we can't completely be ego-free unless we're some ascended master or something like that. So people don't do that completely, but it's not an all or nothing phenomenon. You can let go of your mask to a certain degree if you really trust somebody and you really understand that they want to know the shit about you, not just the good stuff. And that that's something that I think uh, a good practitioner should try to do is gain that degree of confidence with their patients that they really have their interest in heart and that they're gonna be brutally honest with them if the patient is willing to hear that about what they're finding and what they think and that they're, you know, they're not doing it primarily for the money, they're not doing it for the honor, they're doing it because they really wanna help the other person. And uh, if you do that, you get better results. 
and, right. and you get more honest information. So in my words, not yours, but it sounds like Worsley was a bit of a, a prickly person at times. And I think you said difficult sometimes to get along with. So how does someone with that character build patient rapport so effectively? Because I presume if it was so important to him, he was oh, doing he was, he was a master at it, yes. So that's the big topic that nobody talks about. And maybe rightly so, that um, there was a tremendous difference between his clinical persona, his teaching persona, and his private life persona. They're not the same at all. Um, so when I say prickly, he was never prickly with his patients. I never saw a single case of him being prickly with his patients. He could be prickly with his students. He could be prickly with his colleagues, but I never saw him being prickly with his patients. He just was like, in some way, you know, I this is really the wrong word, but I, I don't know another word for it. Like a carnival barker that he knew how to grab a hold of the audience, which could be an audience he was lecturing to as a teacher or a, an individual patient. And get their attention, get their sympathy, their trust, their loyalty. He just was, he knew what you wanted and he gave it to you. He, he was really an expert at reading people. And uh, I've known other people like that in my life who were really good at reading people and could therefore ingratiate themselves very quickly uh, and gain their trust. But that's a double-edged sword. You know, if somebody accepts you because you know how to read them, that doesn't mean you should trust them. So that's a, an interesting topic that nobody talks about. Nobody talks about it. And in a way, you know, it's understandable. Worsley's dead now, but while he was a living, while he was living, nobody certainly talked about it publicly. And now that he's dead, it's kind of also a little bit funny to talk about it. You know, he right. can't, he can't stand up for himself. And, you know, if he disagrees with anything I might say or anybody else might say, he can't, he can't uh, come back at you. So I, yeah. I don't quite know what to say about it. And the truth is that because he was so good at this uh, ability to read people, it really gave him an entry into being able to figure out how to treat them in a way that was incredibly effective for many people. Now he did not have a hundred percent track record with the people he treated. Nobody, no acupuncturist that I've ever met have a hundred percent track record. So I don't want to in any way demean his clinical skill um, by making that statement. But the truth is that, you know, he was human like everybody else and uh, limited like all other practitioners. So one of the downsides to uh, emulating or putting him up on a pedestal like that is that you know you can you can both hurt people by taking advantage of that uh, ability to uh, to read people so well and gain their trust so quickly uh, if you if you don't come from your heart every moment that you use that and and that's again, a, a very tricky 
situation. Like I said, he could be prickly in his personal life and, and great in his clinical practice. And so if he's not coming from his heart always in his personal life, and then he's in the clinic, how easy is it to switch off that outside thing and turn on the inside thing? You know, sometimes you're gonna be in the middle somewhere. So there might be days that you, you can't even find your heart. So it's a, uh, like I said, it's a double-edged sword. And I, I think that it's a wonderful ability to have. I, I certainly don't have anywhere near Worsley's ability to do that. I'm, I'm just not, I'm not, um, I don't have that gift. Uh, I, I have to use other ways to, to get to where I need to get to. And that's fine. I mean, I, I use my other ways, but um, that's something if you study the Worsley system, you'll see that it just doesn't get talked about, that there's any downside to accessing that basically as a shamanic uh, tool. You know, that, that's really what I see it as. Yeah. And, and actually, that's uh, when I first met Ted Kapchuk. That was um, one of the things he told me. He, he got introduced to Worsley, um, well, not in his very early days, but uh, not that long after he had written The Web. And uh, he said, you know, Worsley is the greatest shamanic healer I've ever personally met. And mm. uh, that stuck with me. Yeah. Well, thank you for painting that picture for me. And you, you, answered most of my questions i guess bearing in mind too what you said about worsley not being here so i don't want it to be as much about worsley but just in general did you ever experience any patients who didn't align or didn't didn't trust him in the way that most patients did because perhaps he was coming across as his non-authentic self. He was wearing a mask in order to get the information. And did you ever see any patients who could kind of see through that and put up a bit of a, a barrier to that? Well, everybody has a little bit of a barrier. As I said before, nobody ever takes off their mask completely. But um, to answer your question, as I think it was intended, in the clinic, I never saw, in his clinical wow. practice, I never saw a patient that's amazing. Not, not give into that. However, among his students, many of whom were patients of his, either directly or he was supervising their practitioner, so he was indirectly uh, their patient, there were people that um, wouldn't go for that. Right. Because they had a long enough exposure to him. Right. So that's describing patients that I saw him actually interacting with um, over the years that I studied with him, which were many, you know, it was over a decade. Um, however, I do know of patients that were treated by him who started out with this um, normal response to his uh, appeal who later on became disenchanted or disenfranchised, yeah, disenchanted with, uh, with that approach because, uh, you know, if it's honest, if it's real, it's something that has to go on forever. You, you know, it's not like something that's there today and gone tomorrow. And the problem comes down to, well, what's there for me one year, two years down the line if I'm still having problems and... I still need help. What's my practitioner 
uh, going to do in, in terms of working with me. And one of the issues I've always had with Worsley was he quit pretty quickly after he became a, an acupuncturist. He quickly mutated from practitioner to teacher and stopped having an ongoing clinical practice. And so he would do consultations with other practitioners, patients. And because there was no continuity over long periods of time, uh, it became more and more difficult for me to know what to make of what he was teaching people. For me, the bedrock, the fundamental necessity for am I going to believe what a teacher tells me is that their teachings are based on clinical experience that they face day day in and day out. So, you know, I'm over 76 years old. I've been in practice since 1973, 1974, full-time practice of acupuncture as a solo practice. And that's my bedrock. Every day I see patient that I'm working, I see patients and that's the litmus test. I have to face those patients. And if they're not getting better, am I going to stay true to my heart or am I going to say, well, you know, you're, in, you're incapable of getting better. Don't bo- stop bothering me. That's, that's kind of where the, the rubber hits the road. You know, what do you do with these difficult patients? Um, for me, the answer is you, you say, okay, you know, I'm sort of stymied. If you're willing to hang, hang with me, let's keep looking at it. I'll stay with you. I'm not going to give up on you. And we'll eventually, I think we'll find it. You know, that's the answer I came up with now. I treat cancer patients. My new specialty is I'm a, I'm a cancer specialist these days because I've attracted a lot of cancer patients in the last couple of years. And I figured out the, what I think at least is the um, Bingy, the, the mechanism and ph- the physiological pathological mechanism behind cancer in Oriental Chinese medical terms. And so I know how to treat anybody with cancer at this point. Uh, you know, that's really going out on a limb to state that because, you know, they will not make many authorities happy to hear somebody claim that. And they've in the past been very uh, abusive with doctors who've made such statements. And so I don't ever tell my patients, don't use conventional medicine if you have cancer. I just combine it with what I do. And that's less threatening, I think. But I don't know anybody else in the uh, acupuncture or Chinese medicine uh, field that has a theory about what cancer really is. You know, what is, they know how to treat the manifestations of cancer, the pain, the nausea, the whatever, weight loss. Uh, They know how to treat the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation, but they don't seem to have a theory about what is common to cancer, all cancer patients. And there is, I believe there is a single unitary mechanism because I've seen, you know, maybe 12 or 13 different, you know, from bladder cancer to lymphoma, to brain cancer, to breast cancer, to prostate cancer, to bladder cancer. You know, I've seen patients to run the gamut of 
different kinds of cancer and I've been able to help them all. And I think in some cases, I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed because it's only been a few years. I think, I, I think many of them will be cured of cancer. And these, some of these are from families where all their relatives died from cancer. So they're sitting ducks that they're gonna, you know, if, if nothing changes the trajectory of their lives, they're gonna die from cancer, even if they get good Western medicine. So to me, that's the most exciting part of my, my trajectory in life is to discover things that have never been seen before that can really help people. Well, I've got to know, what's your theory? Like it's... Well, that'll be in my next book, although I have published my, okay. my last public, my, you, can, you can actually access it before that. My last article that's been published is in the Journal of Chinese Medicine in, in England, English yep. uh, version. Um, it was in the um, issue number 125 or 126, I'm not sure. It's a 2019, uh, 2021, this year's publication. Um, so read the article. It, it, it explains as much as I can in an article what my thinking is about cancer. All right. I'm, I'm going to look that up. Is that okay if I find it, if I put it in the show notes? Yeah, sure. A link to that? Sure. Excellent. Now, so answer what you want. Obviously, there's it's in your next book. It's in the article. I'm curious if you are approaching your oncology patients from a perspective more of the spiritual side of things or from the symptomatic side of things, or is it something different? Something, definitely something different. <laughs> Neither of those. All Neither right. Those. Yeah. So, so here's my thinking about the spiritual side. It's very close to what you were asking about before in terms of rapport, that um, how I envision applying the fundamental teaching that for acupuncture to be effective, it has to come touch the spirit is very much in the way that I see rapport as meaning you have to get to the person under the mask. And so that part of my work really is more a reflection of my, my uh, relationship with patients than it is with the technique of treatment uh, with acupuncture needles. Um, so uh, the, the approach I use is much closer to a, a teaching that's part of Korean acupuncture than anything else. And uh, it uses the four needle technique uh, that Saam introduced in uh, um, medieval times to acupuncture. And um, it's basically something that I learned how to get started in by observing one of my teachers, uh, Guan Duan, in the 1980s in Korea. Well, you know, I was one of the few Westerners who ever had the privilege of spending time in his clinic, watching him, observing his practice. And he actually founded a cancer research institute that was his main uh, specialty in acupuncture. He treated everything. His specialty was treating cancer. And uh, although he never told me or my friend and colleague, Stuart Cutchins, how he was uh, a approaching the treatment of his cancer patients by watching him 
and and being obsessive compulsive note takers, we were able to decode his approach to treatment by writing down everything he did with every patient and later on trying to uh, uncover what was the uh, the underlying principle how, how was he uh, actually putting his treatments together so that was a starting point for me what I do now is not exactly the same as what he did but uh, it's very it's close and I never would have gotten anywhere I would never would have even got started I think without having had that uh, really um, amazing and generous opportunity to observe him uh, he he at the time he didn't he doesn't doesn't and didn't speak English, so a lot of my um, work at his observation at his clinic uh, was through a translator, who often didn't translate very much. But uh, I think Guan's thinking was, I'm doing a favor to the doctor, the Korean practitioner who had been my uh, intermediary to get the permission to to observe him. And he thought, well, these are American uh, Caucasian practitioners. They're not going to understand what I'm doing. So, you know, I don't have to worry about them stealing my, my knowledge. And I say that quite literally because he didn't even teach his own students how to, how to treat cancer. This was his specialty. And he just assumed we wouldn't have any idea of what he was doing. We'd just be impressed that his patients were getting better. And uh, lo and behold, when we sort of revealed to him inadvertently by asking questions, <laughs> yeah, we sort of knew what he was doing. We just didn't always understand why, but we could follow what he was doing. He kind of, um, as Stuart says, uh, he said he went pale with Stuart asking this question <laughs> and, and uh, Dr. Kwan's face went pale and, and it was clear he immediately understood, wow, these guys know what I'm doing. Oh my God. <laughs> And he, he actually swore us to secrecy, secrecy at that point. He said, okay, I'll, I'll answer your question. You have to promise me you will not share this with anybody, my approach, until I give you permission or until I've had a chance to publish it myself. So Dr. Guan is now 100 years old. He's still alive. Wow. But he's been out of practice for, I don't know, say at least uh, three years, maybe more. Um you know, he's an old guy and uh, probably not competent to practice anymore. And it's, he also stated publicly at some point that he's not going to do what he had always promised, which was to write a textbook on his uh, method of Korean constitutional acupuncture, which he now calls eight constitutions acupuncture, eight constitutions medicine. Um, so I feel that I'm liberated from that vow that since he's not going to share it, with anybody publicly that I now uh, it's okay for me to share what I know um, of his work but I still honor him greatly I mean he discovered this and it's his baby so uh, I, I feel very grateful uh, uh, that that I had an opportunity to learn it yeah did you say he's only been out of practice for three or four years I, I'm trying to remember when he retired. I think. Like 96, 97, he was I still believe seeing that's patients. Correct. Yeah, that's yeah, incredible. I that's correct. Wow. Yeah, I, don't pin me to that, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that's about about the timing. Right. And so he warmed up enough to answer that question. Did he warm up in general to you too? And he 
became your uh, teacher? Yeah, I had an interesting relationship with him um, that uh, was a little bit different than Stuart's relationship with him. Uh, for some reason, I'm not sure what it was, uh, around the time that I was studying with him was when I had my first child, um, uh, a daughter, and I used to carry her picture around with me. And she was a gorgeous little kid. Um, and uh, Dr. Guan had a, a very strong mystical sense about him and a very strong Christian faith uh, about him. But I think the mystical side was even deeper than the Christian side, although they were both pretty deep. And uh, for instance, he was really into numerology and into uh, translating people's names into numbers and getting an understanding of who they were from what their name was. So very interesting. But so he somehow latched on to my picture of my daughter. And from that, I believe this is just a hypothesis, but it's my sense of what was going on. He felt like he had some kind of um, karmic bond to me personally and my lineage, my family. And so he was more willing to be in contact with me than I think with anybody else from the West that I know of. And so I kept in touch with him for a much longer period of time than anybody else and always had a cordial relationship with him. But to answer your question more specifically about further teachings, it was always, well, I'd really like to um, get this book done and I'd really like to invite you back to Korea again to visit me. Um, I hope it'll happen soon. But again, it never happened after that. I think that it was that last white-faced ashen uh, <laughs> experience that uh, the actual invitations to, to spend time with him stopped happening although correspondence happened, uh, written yeah. correspondence, but more in the in sense of social politeness and, and also some requests for help on both of our parts. I did have, for instance, here's a good example of it. When uh, I first began uh, trying to figure the, the cancer issue out, I remembered uh, his experiences and wrote to him and asked him if he had any, had published anything about uh, treating cancer. And he was kind enough to send me a paper that was published in the Korean Pharmaceutical Association Journal, I believe, that showed that he, some research he did with a, a number of, uh, uh, of other investigators that showed that his treatments of cancer patients normalized some biomarkers in these patients that even when Western medicine had induced remissions in cancer patients, it didn't change these abnormal biomarkers, but his treatments did. And, and he published that in Korea. And so he sent me a copy of that paper. Uh, this was way after the, the, uh, the incident. Um, so he still respected me and felt warmly towards me and uh, 
was willing to share something with me, but that's quite different than sharing his uh, methodology of how to, how to treat cancer that I had right. to do my, 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 by myself. And can you talk at all about the results that you are seeing with cancer patients? Oh, in sure. Clinical yeah, practice? sure. Yeah. So, so, um, almost every one of my cancer patients, I don't want to say a hundred percent, but almost every one of my cancer patients, uh, when they first, uh, on their first visit with me in clinic show a particular pattern in the pulse that is the same for this, the pattern is the same for all patients, regardless of their constitution, regardless of their uh, type of cancer, regardless of where their lesions are, et cetera. The, the, and that's the, something that we, we, I believe reflects the mechanism that's causing the cancer. It has nothing to do with uh, how it's manifesting. It's the underlying mechanism. And the exceptions of where I don't feel that are a couple of patients who have been treated already with Western approaches that apparently have led to either remission or cure. And so, although they're technically, I include them in the group of cancer patients, they may have been uh, successfully treated already. So there are a few of those, not many. And then the other group is patients who have what are called stage zero to stage one lesions. So it's a size uh, and invasive um, description. It's basically a size description of the lesion. And so in very early stages of cancer, the, this it's totally a pulse-based diagnosis. This pulse phenomenon that I've uh, observed and discovered, I'd say, uh, which I call the metastatic signal, doesn't appear in these very early uh, stages. And I think that what that means is that metastatic means things have spread. So it's in these very early cancers, things aren't spreading yet. They're just really localized, very small lesions. So it's a pre-metastatic stage of cancer. It's still cancer, but it's pre-metastatic. So it's either described as carcinoma in situ or just a very small stage one cancer those patients often don't have this metastatic signal and everybody else does that has cancer. And also patients that have benign tumors that their doctors are suspicious about of being cancer. I've also examined them and I tell them, no, it's not, I don't think it's cancer. You know, go get it, biopsy and study x-ray or whatever. MRIs, whatever they need to do to figure out if it's cancer or not. But, you know, I'll bet you it's not going to be cancer. So don't worry about it so much. And they've all come back benign. So I'm pretty confident that what I've discovered is a real marker of a developed invasive cancer process. I forgot your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't need I forget it too. But that, I think you, <laughs> what you said was Great, and I just have some questions about the metastatic signal. And one's a clarification point. Did you say that you're able to feel that even in patients who have undergone Western treatment or in so-called remission? Oh, yeah, 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 yes, that's right. Maybe, that, yeah, that's what I was wanting to add, that many of, a, a significant number of patients that I've, in my practice, who've been through chemotherapy, radiation, 
and surgery, all of them, all three modalities, and often it's multiple chemotherapies, still come in with that metastatic signal. You know, they, they're told the doctors look at them and say, we don't see any cancer. You know, although, you know, we may yeah. still be wanting to treat you with ongoing chemotherapy or something, but they're not seeing any cancer. I examine them and say, I'm sorry, you know, but you haven't, you haven't gotten rid of it yet. And then I treat them and it very, with them usually it goes away very quickly because they've had so much cancer suppressing uh, treatment that it's often not very difficult to get that last little bit that not only suppresses it, but turns off the mechanism. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's something too, just in the, the terminology, which I guess in Western medicine, it's it's nice that they use the term remission because in truth, that is the cancer is not necessarily gone and it's definitely mm-hmm. not cured. And so it's in remission. But I think that's just such a horrible kind of prognosis for someone to carry with them. And we, we know that stress and chi stagnation are cancer building in them themselves. And so to carry that fear that anxiety that, okay, that I've, I've got years at most before this comes back is really, really difficult. And so I think it's fascinating that you're able to, yes, deduce that that metastatic signal indicates that it, it likely will come back and you're able through your treatments to course correct and maybe actually get a, a cure for them, help their bodies to heal. That's incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. Now, now let me reinforce what I said before earlier, that this is something I've been doing for at most three years. Yeah. So, you know, the standard of practice for, you know, for in the field of oncology has always been the five-year survival rate. So I don't have nearly a long enough track record to make as definitive statements as I'd like to be able to make. But, you know, even within three years, you start to get a sense of whether what you're seeing fits the norm that people expect to see and what i'm seeing doesn't fit the norm at all you know it's mm-hmm. it's much much different than than that and are you able via the metastatic signal to in some cases i won't use the term diagnose but to forewarn a patient that there may be cancer within them that they have yes 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 i've done that on on a number of occasions that's an interesting question for uh giving examples um uh i i don't know if you're aware that for the three years prior to the pandemic i've been teaching as a uh um attending physician uh in charge of a workshop uh teaching in china um, for, for three years. And um, in the last year I was there, the, the format is in every morning I see patients in front of the class of student acupuncture students and teachers. And in the afternoons, I give lectures and, and, the, and uh, do practical exercises. And then in the evenings, try to clean up the, the, the uh, difficulties patient, uh, students are having. But uh, in this last visit to China, I had a patient who had, um, what did he have? He had a, a platelet deficiency thrombo, uh, um, thrombocytopenia that um, wasn't responding uh, really well to Western medicine. So, you know, I started treating him. Uh, Chinese, this is Chinese patients in China. And... Um, this was in Beijing, 
And for whatever reason, his wife was impressed enough by seeing what uh, I was doing with him that she asked me if I would treat her too in class. And I said, sure. And her complaint was she had pain in her legs that really restricted movement. It was sort of like an arthritic type of situation, I guess, but she was really uh, pretty limited in, in getting around and um, wanted help with that. And when I took her pulses, I felt this metastatic signal in uh, her pulse. And so I said, uh, after doing, you know, I did the whole workup. Uh, it's not limited to just, do you feel this pulse or not? But I did the whole workup. And then I said to her, listen, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but I think that what's going on with you is somewhere in your body, there's a malignant process going on, a cancer of some sort. And I think that's what you need treatment for. Uh, I, I'm not going to treat you to try to get rid of your leg pain. If you want, I will try to treat you to get rid of your can what I think is a cancer somewhere. And the class was aghast. The students were aghast. My sponsoring teacher there who was in, at, in the class was aghast because apparently in China, you never tell patients that they have cancer or they might have cancer. You might tell their spouse, you might tell their parent, you never tell the patient. This, this is what I was told that it was, you know, just a, a, a real faux pas to have said that in the first place. But, you know, I'm trying to tell you how I invest a lot in trying to establish that relationship with patients where they will take me as I am and trust that I'm not going to uh, withhold or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for, miss misdirect them about what I think is going on. That's really important to me. And so it's very hard for me if I feel something like that, not to tell them that I think that's something that they need to know about. So bottom line, uh, I started treating her and the next day, you know, the, the way that class works is I have the patients come back every day. It's like what I said before about, you know, put your money where your mouth is, that the, your clinical practice is what's really important. So the patients come back every day to show whether they're getting better or not. And, uh, you know, I have to be responsible for whether they do get better or not. So she came back the next day, uh, I believe it was the second day, maybe by the third day, and said, this is incredible. I haven't, my legs haven't felt this good in years. I just walked around the whole forbidden city. I've wanted to do that for years. It's been my dream. Now I can do it. And it was because I was treating her to get rid of this cancer uh, issue. And afterwards, this didn't come out at the time. It came out afterwards. She said, you know what? My gynecologist told me a while ago, I think it was maybe even a couple of years ago, that she was suspicious from my lab tests, my lab results, that I had some kind of malignancy somewhere, but she didn't know where it was. And it never got worked up further than that. But I've been, you know, I've had this with me all this time. So it didn't surprise me when you said that you thought I had a cancer. And um, it was interesting to watch the uh, people in class and especially the, uh, the woman in, uh, doctor in, uh, who invited me um, 
who had been so upset by me saying that changed her, her, her whole demeanor changed of, hmm, you know, maybe this is the way you're supposed to relate to patients because, you know, it really was an impressive uh, change in the story. The whole thing flipped on its side of, unless you had done that, it never would have made this miraculous change happen. So that's an, just, just to answer your question, yes, I do tell people that I think there's a cancer or a tumor somewhere. I'm not sure of it. I can make mistakes. And sometimes there may, maybe even there are other reasons that this signal can show up temporarily in patients because I've had that. I've had one patient where there's a, some really weird kind of illness that affects the knee joints that is considered a tumor of sorts, but it's not invasive or it's locally invasive, but it doesn't metastasize. Um, and she had that. Um, so it was, in it, and it was easy to get rid of and you know, it never came back. Um, and I've had a couple of other occasions where I've said, you know, I'm sort of suspicious that I feel this, so you should know about it. Maybe you should go get tests with your local doctor to see if there's any sign of anything wrong. It's only been a few cases in almost all the other cases where I've felt it. Oh, here's a, another good story. One of my patients who had had several cancers, she had melanoma, and uh, she'd had at least two episodes of melanoma in the past. When she came to me, she also came to me for uh, pain in her knees uh, for arthritis treatment. And I'd been treating her for um, quite a while. And uh, she didn't have that cancer signal in her pulses. You know, I was treating her the way I treat other uh, arthritis patients. But at one visit, I felt that metastatic signal. And as it turns out, she's had like every family member in her whole uh, background, including her siblings uh, have all had cancers. Um, at one point I felt this metastatic signal and I said, you know what, uh, it feels to me like there's a cancer thing going on, go see your oncologist. And sure enough, she had a recurrence of lymphoma and um, went back in on chemotherapy with the oncologist, went into cancer therapy with me and has been in treatment for now. She's one of my earlier patients, certainly more than two years. I don't think it's three years yet, but she's, she's completely fine now, um, as far as I can tell. I mean, she hasn't had that metastatic signal forever. Her oncologist has taken her off all medications, um, and she has no obvious lesions anywhere. So, you know, maybe she's cured, or maybe she's just in remission, but you know, the other thing I've come to is because uh, of what I observed during the pandemic with my cancer patients, I'm of the opinion that anybody that's recovered from cancer with acupuncture should come back for a booster treatment once a month because the patients that, uh, that haven't maintained uh, remission when I closed my office during the pandemic for a little over two months. Actually, all of them maintained it during those two months, but some of them didn't come back when I reopened. So getting on around four months post uh, last treatment, a couple, only two out of all my practice, a couple of my patients had recurrences. 
And they were patients that did not come back when I reopened my office. All the ones who came back uh, when I reopened and came in at least once a month have not had recurrences. Thank you for sharing those stories, Peter. And I got to say, the one from Beijing, I had goosebumps the whole time you were telling that. That's what I love. Well, I love that you're able to help people. But in the same time, and I just had a conversation with a herbal oncologist, Chanchal Cabrera, who is currently writing a book on herbal medicine and oncology. And she said something which I've always said, and I just really was appreciative to hear it from her, and that we all have cancer within us. We all have cancerous cells. And I think to hear that for people, it can actually help to lift the burden or the fear of cancer. And I get that same sort of sense with this metastatic signal that you're talking about because you are able to help these people when you find this signal or this imbalance, you're able to help them heal internally by, in a way, destigmatizing, I think, this diagnosis of cancer. Because in Western medicine, cancer is such an ominous diagnosis that someone gets it, and typically it means in the next 48 to 72 hours, you are going to be getting a ton of tests done. Uh, you might be starting chemo. You might be starting radiation. You might literally have surgery. And it, it's such a kind of a quick succession of events that happen when someone gets that diagnosis. When I think you and I know, and Chanchel knows that that cancer has been there for a very, very long time. And that person had probably been ignoring a lot of the signals of that cancer or a lot of the symptoms, or it just hadn't been put together that, yes, this is a, this is something that is metastasizing within your body, something that is, that is growing, that is cancerous. And so I think this metastatic signal, it just, it makes it, for me, it just kind of takes away some of the shock value. Like there is an imbalance this imbalance indicates there might be some sort of malignancy, yet we all have malignancies. But I think there's, in your experience, there's something that you can do to help treat those patients who have that imbalance or that malignancy. And it's, I'm fascinated by it, and I'm really grateful that you're sharing this. And I think it's incredible that you've, through persistence, you've come across this, uh, this signal and this techniques that you're using to treat the patients. And I'm really excited to learn more about it and to see your forthcoming book and to read this article that you're talking about. So anyway, I just want to thank you for, for sharing all of that and for the work that you're doing. That's incredible. Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. One thing I really have enjoyed learning about you too, is as you said, you first trained as a physician and then you went on to study acupuncture under so many different styles and lineages and not just acupuncture but i you've studied vietnamese vietnamese approaches you've studied japanese korean chinese you've studied ayurveda and i love how you are bringing all of those which all have in my opinion likely similar roots mm -hmm. if not the same roots mm -hmm. and they've they've really spread and they've kind of diversified into these individual offshoots, but you're taking this approach, it seems, where you're actually bringing them kind of back together in what I think is where the original term of oriental medicine came from. It's not just a Chinese approach. Mm -hmm. it, it comes from the East in general. And so I think that's really fascinating that you're doing that. And I guess my question for you is, 
how did you find yourself on the path of exploring all these different approaches? Okay, <clears throat> makes for another good story. So if you're familiar from reading Footsteps with the Worsley approach, uh, it's based on some clinical skills in uh, being able to read people's abnormal color presentation, vocal quality, uh, body uh, smell that they, uh, odor that they emit and emotional uh, um, imbalance that's, that they're presenting. So first off, I have to uh, confess that I'm just awful at being able to use those clinical skills that Worsley claimed were the only way to correctly diagnose somebody's constitution. He didn't call it a constitution. He called it causative factor, but essentially I think it means constitution. So I'm genetically colorblind. So, I mean, that goes out the window right away. <laughs> um, and I don't feel particularly gifted in being able to smell all the different odors that are classically associated with the elements. Um, I can detect emotion, abnormal emotions uh, in almost everybody. I can find all of the different elements abnormally presenting at times. And, uh, and I also observed in my fellow students in class that the odds that they would agree with Worsley when being presented with a case in, in class were minuscule. Almost never did, did there come to anywhere close to unanimity about what the color was and the sound and the odor and the emotion. And often the ones that the students said, this is what it is, were not the ones that Worsley said it was. So right from the beginning, even though I was very impressed with Worsley's clinical skill in helping patients whom he diagnosed in class and then they were treated and they did get better, I wasn't able to effectively uh, um, use that methodology uh, successfully. And that led me to believe that A, if it worked for Worsley, there must be some reality behind it. But B, if it didn't work for me, I had to find some other way of accessing that reality. It's not that 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 he was wrong. It's not that color, sound, odor, and emotion aren't a valid way of doing it, but I couldn't go that way. And so I thought for a long time, I mean, I practiced for many years as a strict Worsley practitioner, because that was not strict because I had other teachers, but that was my main orientation. And, you know, it was very frustrating because as I told you, I'm not really gifted in those uh, clinical skills. So, uh, I also have always been interested in reading the classics and trying to understand what they uh, have to say. And as I told you before, the originator of the acupuncture lineages stressed two things, color, so that was out the window for me, or complexion. The other one was pulses. And if you look at any of the literature, it's so much emphasis on pulses. And yet there's Worsley taught very little on pulses. 
you know, he did teach that you should check the pulses on everyone. In fact, students had homework to do of feeling 20 pulses a day or whatever, um, you know, as part of their uh, curriculum while they were in school. But, uh, but he didn't go into what to do with the pulses. It was just had to learn to feel them so that you could feel changes after treatment. That's basically how he used pulses. You, you felt something and classified it. And then the object of treatment was to get that pattern to shift. So that's how I started with pulses, but I never felt like that was very reliable either in my hands. And so I just said to myself, okay, I'm gonna believe the ancients were accurate about how important pulses were. You know, it's not gonna, for me, it's obviously not gonna be colors. So forget colors, I'm gonna focus on pulses. And actually it was very strange, something that really flipped me out quite a number of years ago, I was working in my office and I got a phone call from uh, an intermediary with Leon Hammer, you know, the Hammer of the Shen Hammer tradition. Yes. yes. Leon Hammer was visiting California. I think he was in Berkeley at the time uh, with this uh, student in intermediary, Rory, who Rory made the phone call and he said, Leon's in town and he wants me to ask you, he said, Leon heard a rumor that you're planning to write a book on pulses. Leon's writing a book on pulses. This was before his first publication. He said, is that true? And I said, no, whatever gave him that idea? I, I, it's the first <laughs> thing from my mind. I don't know shit about pulses. I'm, supposed, I'm trying to figure it out. I have no idea what pulses are all about. And he said, okay. <laughs> then, so then Leon went ahead, I'm trying to remember, I think this was even before his first book uh, about the dragon rises, red bird flies, something like yes. that. Yep. So, so Leon actually asked me to, to proof his book for him. Um, and uh, so something in me, I, I also have had a number of interesting personal interactions that are, aren't worth talking about with Leon, which I'm sure had, had some role to play in this crazy story, but something in me got ticked by Leon feeling like he was battling with me about who was gonna write the Pulse book. <laughs> At that time, it was the furthest thing from my mind, but somehow when he said that, I think my mind flipped to, you know, this is really what I'm interested in. I probably should think about, I want to write it. Not that I can write a Pulse book, but I want to write a Pulse book. I'm gonna redouble my efforts to understand the pulses. I'm gonna throw out everything that people say about the pulses. I'm just going to examine the pulses like with a blank slate. And then one by one, ask myself, do I feel anything that resembles what other people have claimed about what's in the pulses? And starting to do that, I began to discover a few things that fit and many things that didn't fit, many things that uh, just made no sense to me at all at the time. The one thing I'd add to this is, 
my prior experience with the Korean teachers, with Dr. Guan in Korea, he takes pulses up the arm, you know, a totally different position, like where, really? where Ayurvedic pulses, pulses are felt. And so I've had quite a bit of other experience with not just relying on Singuan Chi, the uh, standard pulse positions. And so I began little by little putting together all the different things that I'd heard about pulses or experienced about pulses from the few teachers I'd had. And at some point I discovered that by watching how people take pulses, there was no unanimity. People did all kinds of different things when they took pulses. The main thing is, you know, some people like Worsley put all three fingers together at the wrist crease and that was how they positioned their fingers. Other people, they had their fingers spread. Some of them weren't down by the wrist crease. And then when I take classes, like with Jimmy Chang, he says, no, you never put your finger down at the wrist crease. The index and middle finger always separate the uh, crest of the styloid process. If you're going down by the wrist crease, you're wrong. That's why you don't get good results. So I, I just put everything that everybody was telling me about pulses into the hopper of, I want to figure it out. And I came up on a stumbling block. It couldn't, I couldn't put it all together in a way that answered my question. The basic question was, I wanted to be able to diagnose a person's constitution from the pulse. I'd never heard anybody, even Worsley never claimed you could do that. Um, you know, that's why he used the color sound odor and emotion. He, he said pulses were important, but he never used them to diagnose the constitution. So I said, I want to be able to do that because I can't do color sound odor and emotion. I'm going to do it through the pulse. And I couldn't do it. So the other approach I had to constitution was through the Korean, through Dr. Kwan. So I had some way of knowing what people's constitutions were to some degree, you know, whether it was right or wrong, I had an approach but I couldn't fit it all together. And then um, for whatever reason, whether it's a gift from God or it's just the natural course of being a scientist and an investigator, it dawned on me that there were other approaches to pulse diagnosis that could give me some added information. And that Ayurvedic medicine was one of them that had a very long traditional history of pulse diagnosis that I knew nothing about. And none of my acupuncture colleagues knew anything about. They said, okay, I'm gonna try to find a teacher of Ayurvedic pulse diagnosis, which I did. I found uh, someone locally, you know, that was uh, a very good pulse diagnostician of Ayurvedic uh, medicine and spent a number of uh, years uh, attending class with her and, uh, trying to learn her approach. And once I did that, I, I, for whatever crazy reason, since I didn't even agree with her about what the Ayurvedic pulses were showing, you know, I would say, she would ask me, you know, okay, what, what are you feeling in your own pulse? And I would tell her and she'd say, no, that's wrong. And I'd say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> as it turns out, I was right and she was wrong, but um, I recognize, that's one of the things about me, I, like I said, I'm stubborn. I thought I was right. And I said, I'm gonna compare what I feel 
to what I learned from Dr. Guan about constitutions and try to match the Ayurvedic, uh, what's called the uh, Prakriti pulse, because in Ayurveda, you do actually have a constitutional pulse. Okay, I'm going to try to match that to the Korean constitutional pulse. And when I did that, I realized that the thing that made them commensurate with each other was a third intermediary piece of knowledge, which was the system taught by one of my other Korean teachers, Yute Wu, the person that developed Korean hand acupuncture. He has a diagnostic system that uh, it's not really a constitution, he calls it three constitutions theory, but it's really three conditions theory. But uh, because they're common, common patterns, he used the word constitution, that that intermediary body of knowledge explained how the Korean constitutional acupuncture diagnosis and the Ayurvedic property diagnosis could match each other because they all shared the same hand acupuncture diagnosis. And from there, it's what I called the Rosetta Stone of, uh, of pulse diagnosis for me. It just opened the field up tremendously. And from that moment, I was able to begin just adding, building the blocks. Now, at least I had a basis. I had, okay, this part I know to be true because I can, it fits three different uh, um, systems of knowledge and coherently, it must be reliable. I'm going to say that's what I'm going to depend on. And anything new I observe, I'm going to build, attach that to what I already know is reliable. And that's what I've been doing for the last, you know, whatever since, uh, I don't know, when did I start doing this around uh, 2012 or something like that. Um, and so I've developed it into what I call constitutional conditional acupuncture, but it's based 98% on pulse diagnosis. Um, so um, did I answer your question? I don't know. Oh, that's a great story. I think you yes. did. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's, yes, uh, that ties together. I guess the original question was what brought you to explore all these different uh, philosophies of, mm -hmm. of treatment and, and medicine. Yeah. 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 I did want to add one little thing, if I might, about uh, something you mentioned earlier about everybody has cancer and uh, um, how we feel about that is a part of the issue of treating cancer. Um, and again, I want to add one more um, illustration and case history from my own practice. I have one patient with uh, breast cancer, young woman, who um, came to me very shortly after she was diagnosed with breast cancer. <clears throat> she was told that it was a particularly aggressive uh, tumor. And I think she already had some lymph node metastasis uh, identified, and she was told that the odds strongly favored that she was going to die. She, she just uh, had two infant children, um, and she was the most terrified patient. One of the two, I, I've had some other terrified patients, but she was up there with the most terrified patients I've ever had to deal with. And just the reason I'm bringing this up is I wanted to illustrate how I approach the issue of 
um, rapport with patients is I recognized that there was no way I was going to be able to work with this uh, woman unless on some level I could get her to not be so terrified of her diagnosis, especially since once I, while I was in that intake session, it turned out her diagnosis was urinary bladder excess constitution. So she had a water excess constitution and fear is the emotion yes. of water. So I said to myself, I said, you know, there's no way I'm ever gonna be able to work with her unless I can get her to not be so obsessed with fear. And so I said, that was the, before I even put a needle in, a single needle in her, I said, listen, I'm gonna tell you this whole approach I use to cancer and what my experience has been treating many patients. And I believe I can help you beat this cancer. I can't promise you, but I, that's what I believe. I believe I can help you beat this cancer. If you wanna do that, if you wanna beat this cancer, you have to understand part of it is your responsibility. It's not all my responsibility. Your responsibility is that you have to work on this fear that you have that as long as you react to everything that relates to your health with, I'm gonna die of cancer, oh my God, I can't, this, I, I, my life is, is over, it's meaningless, my poor little children. I said, as long as you keep doing that, I'm gonna have the most difficult time helping you. If you work on getting rid of that, I'll bet you you're gonna get better really quickly. And so she said, I'll try. She came in the next time after the first treatment. Her pulses were better. The metastatic mm. signal went away. She was still just as terrified. Her emotion hadn't changed. And I said, are you working on it? She said, I'm trying, but she really hadn't changed. So there is a difference between how the emotion, where the emotions are at and this metastatic signal, you know, whether that's a reflection of how out of balance emotionally they are, but they work together. And I kept at her. I kept at her all the time. No, I've been treating her for, you know, a long time, well over a year anyway. And um, as far as I know, she's free of cancer now, but she comes to see me twice a week and she made me swear I'm never going to retire. And, <laughs> and she's going to see me as her doctor for the rest of her life. She's just told me that point blank. You can't retire. You can't <laughs> die. You can't move. <laughs> Sounds like there's still a little bit of fear there. <laughs> well, there is fear, but it's a displacement. She's displaced yes. it from that too. She, she doesn't now. She, she comes in. She smiles. She enjoys her life. She goes out for walks. You know, she's been through chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. and I always encourage them, you know, do whatever else the doctors tell you to do. So I don't try to get them to not do Western treatment. Um, unless I think it's making things worse. I mean, there are occasions where I will say to somebody, you know, this treatment is why you're feeling so bad. But um, right. aside from that, um, her life has changed dramatically. And it's, I think in large part because she's understood that she has to take some responsibility for not living in fear all the right. time. Well, I think that's very timely advice too considering that the world right now is immersed oh, yeah. in fear mm -hmm. yep. and 
what will be the outcome for so many people of that fear, and especially if there are people as 20% of the people who have a water constitutional factor, is that going to really impact them in a, in a highly negative way? I think it's going to impact all of us in a negative mm-hmm. way, but it is something that... Well, let me, let me say this. Let me say this about that because uh, it's just relevant to my practice. I, I'm today we're speaking in the afternoon. I worked all morning in my clinic, um, so um, the first three patients I saw this morning. Is that right? Yeah, the first three patients I saw this morning all had um, worry as their uh, CHE, their pathogenic factor going on. And that was my treatment is, again, I have my own way of dealing with uh, treating CHE, which is a more recent development in my approach. But that was the treatment for the first three patients in my practice was worry. And for two of them, they they didn't come in complaining of worry, but, you know, and asking them what's going on with you, they said, well, you know, these days with the COVID thing, it's really got me so nonplussed. I don't know what to make of it and that kind of thing. You know, that was beside whether they had leg pain or headaches or yes. whatever. So the only thing I did for them was to treat what, how I treat worry in uh, as a path, an invading pathogen, in this case, an internal internally created pathogen it didn't come from the external world you know it's not like it wasn't dampness it was it was uh, an emotional internal causative factor but that's what i did to treat them and they all had great responses to treatment so um the interesting thing is none of them were earth cf earth constitutions they're all worry and i treated the earth meridian but it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with their constitution. It was mm-hmm. because this situation in the world is just so conducive to worry that yes. uh, very few people are able to resist that completely. Yeah. Well, I think it's conducive to excess of negative emotions in general, yeah, yeah. whether that's worry, fear, yeah, exactly. stress, hatred. Like it's yeah. yes. exactly. very polarizing and very challenging. Agree with you 100%. Peter, this has been great. And I've really enjoyed getting to know you and hearing some of these fascinating stories. I, before we leave, I want to talk a, a bit about your other book, The Complete Acupuncture, and your Complete forthcoming- Complete Acupuncturist. Complete Acupuncturist, sorry about that. And then your forthcoming book. So if you could just give us a bit of an overview on The Complete Acupuncturist, and then I think the forthcoming book you've, you've said about, it's gonna be about pulses. And, but if there's anything more you want to add to that, please do. Okay. So I, first off, I have four, four books that we're talking about. Three of them are, are actually published. So there's the, in the footsteps of the yellow emperor is basically a history book. The complete acupuncturist was my introduction of constitutional conditional acupuncture as a new methodology, a new type of acupuncture style, lineage or styling. And then I have a third book, which is called Grasping the Donkey's Tail. Oh, yeah, is, right. Yeah. So that's more, that. that's more a uh, discussion of my unorthodox interpretations in, in, in many ways of classical text. Uh, 
where I see things somewhat differently than most commentators have uh, interpreted them that I wish to share with the, the world. So it's three different hats that I'm wearing, a yeah. historian, a, a, a textual analyst, and a clinician. Uh, so um, the complete acupuncturist uh, is a book that talks a lot about pulses. A lot of what I do now is already av available in that book. Um, and uh, the forthcoming book is really a project. It's not. A, it's really not correct to call it a forthcoming book. It's a book I have in my mind and have written a lot of, but it's a work in progress. And I'm not going to call it a forthcoming book really until I say, okay, it's done. So I don't know yes. how long that, you know, I've been working on it for uh, over a year already. So I don't know, it may be ready in a year and maybe ready in a month and maybe ready in three years. One of the problems with that book is that um, since it is gonna go into depth about my cancer uh, approach, I have to decide <clears throat> how long a, a clinical trial feel is appropriate in order to um, make that a major publication. You know, is is it fair to put that in it as a as a book, having had three years of experience at it, or should I wait till five years as a standard, for instance, or six years or four years? You know, I don't know. I haven't. That's still a question in my mind that I haven't answered. But there are a number of new pulse findings that will be in that book that aren't in the complete acupuncturist or grasping the donkey's tail, which even though it is a textual analysis does, if I remember correctly, go into some texts that relate to pulse diagnosis. So, um, yeah, all of them, all of my work since the history book does have uh, pulse diagnosis to one degree or another uh, in it, because that's that's my approach, my entryway into uh, acupuncture at this point. Yeah, um, and. As you've mentioned, your donkey likeness and your stubbornness, are, are you the donkey grasping the donkey's tail or is it your tail being grasped? Or Well, that's a good question. I, I think it's um, kind of like what they say about dreams. You're everybody in your dream. You're creating the dream and yep. you're all the characters in it. I, I think I'm all of, all of it. <laughs> oh, so good. And where can people learn more about you outside of your books? Do you have a website or I have a website? It's www.petereckmanacupuncture.com. Great. And are you still taking patients? Well, patients? I, I, I am theoretically taking patients. I have a full-time clinical practice. And so it's a full practice at the moment in the two locations where I work. But I have a waiting list, and as new spots open up, I, if people are on the waiting list, I call them up and I say, you want the spot? If they are still interested, they get it. If not, yeah. I go to the next person. And, and yeah. where approximately are you located? I, I have offices in San Francisco, California, and Palo Alto, California, which is where Stanford University is. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me and our listeners today. 
and for all the books that you've written and all, your dedication to the craft and to the research because it's it's really important to have people like you who are carrying on these lineages and questioning them, digging deeper to find connections and answers and new ways to to implement them. So I think it's it's wonderful everything that you're doing. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share all that today. Okay, Todd. Well, thank you also for inviting me. And, uh, um, you know, every time you uh, answer a question, if you're not just being a, uh, an actor reading a script, but you're actually trying to answer the question, you inadvertently discover something in trying to come up with a, a really good response. So it's been educational for me as well to try to figure out how to respond to your questions. So thank you for that opportunity because uh, I grow from it myself. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure for sure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Dr. Peter Ekman. If you would like to learn more about Peter, please visit his website, peterekmanacupuncture.com. That's Ekman, E-C-K-M-A-N. And explore any of his wonderful books. If you feel drawn to the study of Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services and holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, experiment with different ways that you can refine your interpersonal rapport.